welcome to Stories of Success. My name is Natalia Nicholson and today I am here with my husband Nathan Nicholson. Um, and today, as you know, I run this episode every week because I feel like it's really important as a female entrepreneur in business, whether you're in the digital world or not, um, I feel like it's really important to have stories of inspiration, to have stories that are real, to see people that look like you, that might have similar backgrounds, that are doing well and they have been able to turn their business into a success. Um, it's important that we have these stories. It's important that we have these case studies because it's what helps keep you going. Because sometimes on this journey, you just feel like, can you ever really make it and get there? And when you hear about the others that do, it's just inspiring. I think we live in a world nowadays where many stories of inspiration, influencers, they don't tend to come from underrepresented communities. So it's important that I bring to you stories that you can see yourself in. So it helps to inspire you and motivate you. With that said, today I'm not actually going to be covering um, a woman. <laughs> Um, today, I'm actually going to be looking at my dad, so you're going to have to bear with me. I've had to write a lot of notes on this one, and for any of you that watch this show, Annabelle does all the scripts, but this one is about my dad. My dad recently passed away on August 15, 2021, and it's been a really difficult period for me, but I felt like I needed to do this show as a tribute to him, because for me, there are so many things about who I am and how I've achieved the things that I've achieved because of him and the things that he has taught me. And I just want to share those lessons with you today. And I also want to look at some of the people that he looked up to as role models that influenced him, that in turn influenced me as his daughter. Um, so yeah, I just want to touch on some things. So um, I always remember my dad as a young girl, someone who was really tall and really strong. For many of us that had a dad or a male influence or figure in our life, that was that would have been the case. That feeling of, you know, being picked up and just feeling like you're safe, feeling like you're high up in the world, especially when you're really small. And, you know, adults generally tend to look a lot bigger. So he always made me feel really safe. I always knew it was his primary job to look after me and to protect me. And knowing that and having that security is what's given me the, I was going to say confidence, but I wasn't always confident, actually. I'm just going to tell it as it is. It gave me the balls <laughs> of want of a better term um, as a woman to actually do things and feel secure, knowing that, you know, you're protected and having that feeling growing up. Um, one of the biggest lessons that he taught me, also taught my siblings as well, is that those who know better should do better. And it's one of these annoying things that oh, it always, as you know, just gets me. No matter how angry or, you know, in, whatever injustice that I feel, or if I feel like something's wrong or someone's done something wrong, <laughs> if I know better and I can understand where they're coming from, this is inability just to let it go and think, you know what, it's because of X why they've done that and I need to understand that. Even though they don't understand it, I understand it. So those words will always ring in my head. Natle, those that know better should do better. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's a great lesson. It's just a great thing to have, even though it is tiring sometimes. 
Uh, yeah, I think it's a part of um, it's a, it's a good quality to have because I think if all of us was like that as human beings, it, it would be a much better place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you know you, you you're in a situation and you know you know the person's in the wrong, but you know better as a person that you know what if you don't do A, B, or C, then this situation could get out of hand, etc. Every like, action. And has sometimes to be you have to just swallow and just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. And you um, talk about the ego a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and the ego will get the better of you. Yeah. Um, so big lesson for me. But the funny thing was when he used to teach me that lesson, he wasn't actually teaching me that lesson on the scale that I do it on. What he was actually teaching me was in regards to your family, you love them unconditionally. And just because they might do things that you might not like or you're angry with, that love should be unconditional. And if you know better and you understood why they did it, you should just rise above it. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing was, he taught me that in elements of how I should be with our family. But it filtered out for me. And it's one of the things that has definitely made me the individual that I am. Um, he taught me strength of a character as well. My dad taught me not to judge people. And it's really funny, we have a tendency to be hypocrites in life, we all do. <laughs> Whether rightly or wrongly. And in one sense, actually my dad would have a lot to say about someone that he might not like, but at the same time, he didn't judge people. And what I mean by that is sometimes people in this world can be quick to judge people if they've got less, if they seem to be not talking the right way, dressing the right way. Um, and when you look at our culture, you've seen our culture change to fit in with the masses of the world. And so when I say my dad taught me not to judge people, whether someone could be younger, maybe they might not be dressed or look or smell or talk <laughs> in a particular fashion or way that's deemed by society of being proper, it's not your place to judge. And even if someone's done something that is of discredit or disservice, it's not your place to judge. There's only one person that can judge in this um, lifetime. And again, these are all things that he taught me that I watch him not always do himself. And I haven't always done it, but it's just strange him not being here. It's just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks of the things that he taught. And that's, what, that's something that he always taught us. Um, don't judge people because no one's perfect. But he also taught me how to stand up for myself. Yeah. Um, like I never forget one time at school I was being bullied. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't always have a big mouth. And I remember, <laughs> I remember him saying to me, you know, what are you scared of? And I said to him, I'm scared of getting hit. I'm, like, I'm scared that the thought of someone striking me, petrifying life out of me. And Jerry said to me, he said to me, you don't need to be scared of getting hit because when someone lick you down, you need to get back up and they need to be more scared of what's about to happen now and what you're <laughs> going to do to them. <laughs> uh, and he often used to, <laughs> to say that to me. But he did teach me how to stand up for myself. So as a young girl, I was really, really shy. I didn't have much confidence. But those words rang in my head till one day I had that point where you snap and you break and that message just came through and it stuck with me. If I'm gonna have to stick up for myself, let's go there, I'm gonna have to do this and just, you know, put my, my big girl pants on. Um, but yeah, my dad was a, he was an alpha male. He installed tradition in me. Anybody that um, 
comes from the Caribbean, from the African, from the Atlantic slave trade, to be fair, um, ha always has a sense of pride of where they come from. Um, and maybe many of you watching this are going to say that I'm being biased, but I do feel like Jamaicans more so are just so proud about where they come from. Like when we look at things like 2012 Olympics when Bolt ran all those races and you saw the whole of the stadium with first, second generation Jamaicans in there, people from Jamaican that were over, there's a big sense of being proud. When you look at what's come out of Jamaica in terms of household names, stars, people that touch the world. We're going to talk about Bob Marley today. My dad was a very, very proud Jamaican and that's definitely been installed in me. Um, even towards the end, the, um, our children used to play dominoes with him and you guys literally, it sounded like you was in a Jamaican rum bar. Like, it's funny. <laughs> even though I come from a Jamaican background, I don't speak Patwa very well. Like, you can blend in with them. You're really good. Yeah, when I'm really <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that. Um, fair play. Um, the, kids would, um, the, you know, the kids would always, they even now, they're mimicking. But just that sense of belonging um, my dad gave me growing up. And I think anybody that has that, and I hope you're listening to this and resonating if it were from your family background and just what makes you you. Because a lot of this of what I'm talking about today, believe it or not, does actually relate back into business. Because for you to understand who you are, that comes out in your business. Your business is born out of you. So your brand is all about what makes you fascinating. So understanding what makes you fascinating and how you got there is really, really key in terms of understanding your why of what you do. And again, today, I just wanted to speak about some of the lessons because it's just all a part of parcel of making me me. I'm a straight talker. Um, one of my first businesses, Straight Talk to Success, digital marketing agency. Where do I get that from? Actually, that's from my dad in the weirdest way. Um, I remember being really young and coming home to go out partying and I never used to bring friends back home. Big mistake. My dad was so embarrassing. My sister just did not understand this or learn this lesson and she'd be always bringing people back home. But I never used to bring people back home. Um, it just wasn't worth it. You couldn't understand what he was saying. He was abrupt. My dad was just embarrassing in that sense. He just didn't want it. Anyway, this day I didn't think he was going to be there and I was just popping in to get clothes because I was going out. And I had a friend friend with me in the car. And I was like, no, 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 you can come in. Uh, I think the heating was broken or something in my car. And a little broke down Astra. So anyway, they come in the house. And my dad, my dad was there. <laughs> and it was Friday night. So now we would eat pub. <laughs> and he'd had two drinks. And he burst into the front room in true Holmesy style. If anybody knows him when he's had a drink, he's just, my dad could pick something up and just break it because he was so heavy handed. So he burst into the room. And I thought, oh, crikes. And I thought, I said, um, Daddy, Stephen, Stephen, Daddy. And my dad said, Stephen, he's like, you know what? I don't even want to know what your name is because when I tump you down, I don't have to say John was a nice lad. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, you can go and wait in the car. <laughs> but <laughs> what it did teach me as I got older was sometimes you're going to be faced and put into situations where a lot of us don't like confrontation and we don't like to say how things are. And sometimes you just have to say how things are. Um, and also as well, as a young girl, it made me feel that it's, it's that protected feeling. Even though it was embarrassing, you'd be like, oh, daddy. It's still that feeling that someone's got your back and is going to protect you to a level that no one in the world is going to do. But it did teach me as I grew up, 
a lot of his bluntness, his embarrassing ways that I didn't like as a child just taught me how to be more outspoken and just say how you feel. These are all things that are lessons that just get you ahead in life. 100%. Yeah, yeah. they really are. Um, my dad was a working man. Um, he had excellent work ethic. And that work ethic has been passed on to me, uh, my sister and my brother. And my work ethic of working till... I can't work no more to get what I want definitely comes from him. He taught me that if you're going to provide for your family, if you want to be something or do something, you're going to have to work. I just didn't want to work for someone else. That's what made us different, even though that used to freak him out. Because in that sense, he thought, get an education, get a job. That wasn't for me. But what he didn't realise, and I hope he did before he went, was actually it was that work ethic that has made me the success I am today of... It, my desire was so big, I knew I would have to work hard, and hard work didn't frighten me. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me. Um, sometimes, as a parent, I just think that, you know, as a parent, you want security for your children. So when you get a good education, you tend to get a good job, and you get a guaranteed pay every week, month, etc. When you're entrepreneur now, it's totally different. Sometimes you don't know what's coming in from what's not coming in. Yeah. So, yeah, parents always opt for that easier option. They want what's safe and best for you so you don't have to go through hardship. As an entrepreneur, you take that leap of faith. Yeah. And it's strange because I feel like my entrepreneurial spirit came from him. But then at the same time, I feel like that's not something that he ever followed. He liked the idea of it, but like many people, the risk of what the outcome could be mm-hmm. if you fail yeah, yeah. is what stops you from yeah, really yeah. taking risks and yeah. getting ahead. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. Mm. Um, and it's funny that you say that because there are many times, um, a lot of you women listening are going to understand this. They often say that you marry someone like your dad. Oh, and goodness. I definitely <laughs> feel that. <laughs> 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 that, I someone that was, that was, um, just like my dad without a, a, a shadow of a doubt, um, just in a sense of, you know, that role that you even play with our children of keeping them protected and keeping them secure. Um, that role of, you know what, okay, you know, when you come from a black background, whether that's Caribbean or African, women tend to seem like they rule the roost in the household, but then there's that time where that final word comes where it's just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of got to step down and say, okay, <laughs> I get it, you man, I'm woman. Um, and there's that element of that, it's funny, that alpha um, alpha male role that I watched my mum and dad do and we replicated the exact same thing. <laughs> I'm just hoping I'm not as bony as my mum. <laughs> and like my dad, he might have had his flaws and no one's perfect. Um, and obviously this is a tribute, but he was so loyal and committed to my mum. And that's exactly what I get from you. Um, but yeah, the contagiousness, yeah, definitely the same as well. Definitely the same. <laughs> on my behalf. Oh, definitely on your behalf. <laughs> I, well, I thought I was quite calm. And <laughs> no, I th- there's that element of, you know, get up, stand yeah. up. Yeah. Get up, stand up. 
stand up for your rights. Um, that would always remind me of my dad. It was even whether it was in the household with my mum, whether it might have been getting into an argument with someone about a political debate. If he believed in something, That's he believed that yeah. you get up and you stand up for it. And if you've got to lick a man down, you know how we used to talk, or whatever you've got to do by any means necessary, you do that if that's what you're standing up for. So I really became about, you know, the principle of the matter. I've got that misconstrued as a teenager. But you do, you have to believe in something. And this world will make you feel like you've got to believe what the mass is. Even when we look at social media and digital world, it's like having an opinion in this day and age can get you into a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know, there's so many different underrepresented communities. God forbid you speak out about any of them and they come for you. It can end your career. It can end your business. And when you do come from an underrepresented background and you've been at the receiving end of discrimination for centuries, decades and years, it can seem very unfair and very unjust. Um, so it is important that you stand up for your rights because a lot of people don't stand up and speak up anymore. We want to either sit on the fence, we want to blend into society. Yeah, we sort of blend in. It's okay to be seen and be different. And you know what? If people don't like it... <laughs> They don't like it. Um, so, yeah, definitely another lesson that was taught to me. Stand up for what you believe in. Stand tall and stand proud. And even as I just slashed, she was always saying to me, stand tall and stand proud. <laughs> another Jamaican. <laughs> yeah, without a shadow of doubt. Um, I remember him fixing things all the time. Can't say I picked up a... I remember him fixing a couple of things as well. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, were you talking about me or <laughs> <laughs> the chair that Naya and our daughter had? It's like a plastic chair from a pound shop. This chair was broke up, had cracks in it. He really but put he screws <laughs> and he, he screwed it all back together again. But he could fix things out of nothing. Yeah. Like most people are going to go to the shop, ah, oh, they need to put up a blind that's fallen down, so they need to get some new screws, etc., wall plugs. Your dad would just make it out of the resources that he's got. Yeah, yeah. He didn't try to buy anything. Like, even before he passed, he built himself this, like, shelter outside in the garden where he used to sit. He had a bad leg and he used to sit out there and just, you know, take life in, get fresh air. He actually had a shelter. It had hay on it. And he just used the things at his resources. That is so true. He was very humble. Um, and it's funny, now that we're talking about it, I would say him being a fixer-upper and using resources and not having to go out and buy things and have money, that's where the humbleness comes in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes as well, when we progress from a certain place in life or we look at Instagram or we look at the world, we want this perfect world, we can forget where our parents and other generations came from. Everything has to be perfect, etc, etc. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. And what is perfect? perfect? Perfection is different to other people. But, you know watching him even pass you leave you don't leave with any of this stuff so you know in terms of resources you know use what you've got available to you because when you use what you've got available to you it's amazing that the results that you can get don't ever think that because you don't have a resource or you don't have something means that you've got limitations you are your own limitation you can do whatever you want to do if you can creative think think outside the box don't limit yourself um, really important. Um, but yeah, he loved being a grandparent. 
um, is yeah, very good grandparent. That was really strange to see. I don't remember my dad being like loving with me. I think a lot of black families are like that. So it was strange, especially with Naya, our youngest daughter. As soon as she walked through the door, what would he say? Hey, my little girly. Yeah, hey, my little girly. And he would always kiss her goodbye. She's like, come on, granddad, give me a kiss and a hug. Um, so it was strange to see that because he was never like that with us. Yeah. So I guess as you get older, you're a different grandparent. I feel you get softer as you get older. You get more like, you can show your feelings a bit more. Yeah. I don't know, especially within the Caribbean community, it's like this macho man not to be loving or show that you love. Yeah, and I think for anybody that's got children that's listening to this, it's important that you show that affection and love. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, really important. But it's shown through other. It shows you other way. Um, it's shown through other ways. Um, dominoes was such a big part of culture in our house. A family oh, gathering there was <laughs> slabbing down. <laughs> um, oh, he taught um, the boys how to play dominoes. Like in COVID, you guys literally had a rum shack. You did get better at dominoes. Yeah, but practicing with him, I got much better. <laughs> I've even got the feedback from my gameplay. Yeah. Oh, it was something that we used to play like each and every day through the whole COVID period and lockdown and everything. We'd have our little drinks, sit down, play yeah. dominoes and, and just it, enjoy time. And that's the things that make me smile, that yeah. we had that time. Um, we had that time. So it's just been nice to just look at his life and just look at the you know optimism that he gave me. Um, just looking at the fact that he went through so much pain towards the end but never complained, which is a testimony to so many of the principles um, that he taught me, if that makes any sense. And I think it's just been a reflection time for me at the moment, even when I look at where he came from in being the Windrush generation. And to think now that I run a community for underrepresented women um, in a digital space that run their own business and hearing him talk about his experience of leaving Jamaica where actually there was no racism or prejudice or anything. He generally thought he was coming here for a better life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember him talking about his days growing up. He talked about them with sheer joy. There was that pride of the fact that he got three years old, he'd walk down with cans to go and get water, he'd be barefoot. What was it about the Rockstones? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, there, there was always conversation of, you know, the, the luxuries that we now have as his children and the fact that he didn't have those luxuries and how he lived. Oh, sorry, I thought we was going in for a break, but we're not, that's okay. Um, yeah, so it was, it was just interesting. Even the way he came into this country, he was on the back of a truck that went from Lucy in Hanover, which is on the north coast of Jamaica, and that truck drove all the way into Kingston, and then from Kingston, got on the boat and came over. That whole journey was him thinking that he is coming and doing something a lot greater, contributing to society. Um, he was actually, he came in here and was actually in the, um, he went into the army. But when he came there, he got the shock of his life. He said, he remember his first day at school, he had to end up having a fight. The teacher asked him, are there lions in the jungle in Jamaica where you come from? No, the racism that he received coming into this country was there was an element of not understanding it. But what he did teach me is that people will underestimate you because of the colour of your skin and when you look different. And rather than you feeling sorry for yourself, you stand up tall, you stand up proud, and you let them underestimate you. Because when people underestimate you, actually, that is the best thing ever. Um, my dad always used to say, you know, um, 
you know, people pay, play full to catch wise. That's it. Play full to catch wise. Let people underestimate you. Let people think that you're the underdog because of the colour of your skin. Let them feel that you have limitations and you can't do what you can do. From when you know you can do what you can do and you've got that desire and you've got that tenacity, actually your journey becomes a little bit easier when people do underestimate you without a shadow of a doubt. Um, that's a huge lesson for me. I like being underestimated. Mm. Makes me work harder and it makes me kind of, the ego comes into play. You go unnoticed as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so his experience of the wind rush taught me that as much as you have to stand up for yourself and you're going to have to fight, actually, you know what? You have to have that belief in yourself. And his belief actually came from going into the army. So he went in the army younger than what he should have done. So he was guarding places all around the Gulf, which we now know as the UAE. He was in Ireland around the IRA attacks. Mm -hmm. um, he was a gun shooter, um, which he told us many, many, Char many charge shooter yeah. that he told us about. So I think for my dad, there was an element of feeling like he'd done a lot for this country, a lot for the Queen, and for where he was coming from and for how black people were treated. It left a nasty taste in his mouth. And I think that's how he came so connected and passed the knowledge down as some of the people we're about to speak to now. Um, and I think for me, understanding what he went through in the wind rush and coming to this country is why I have a community of underrepresented women. Because I feel like there needs to be a representation, a voice, a place where you can come to and connect with people like yourself, not have to bow down, be ashamed, change yourself, change the way you look, change the way that you talk, to have to fit in with a mass when actually underrepresented communities are the biggest consumers and they actually put wealth in the 1% wealth of the world. Um, got tongue-tied there. So 1% of the population is wealthy. That wealth is put there by consumers. And underrepresented groups, more so people from black communities, are spenders. We spend the most. So we line the pockets of those that are wealthy. And it's not to say that because I feel like this world teaches you that wealthy people are evil. They're not evil, but there is enough wealth in this world, the underrepresented group. That if you really want to go for what you want to get, go and get it because there is more than enough out there, more than enough space. And there should be more space for us and there should be more representation of seeing people that look like you that are there and they, they're a part of that wealth. And the digital age has definitely brought about um, it's lowered the boundaries of being able to get that wealth because the world cannot sustain with 1% of it being wealthy. Um, so just so much that he taught me, so much. And I just want to look at some key people that influence him now. Um, and I just wanted to share that with you. Um, and yeah, just simply want to say, I just, I, I, I love you, Daddy. There's just so much that you gave me and I'm so blessed. Um... Yeah, I'm just so grateful for my childhood and for my dad. And I just want to actually today, that's kind of helped me talking about that, actually just celebrate him. Because sometimes it's easy to get consumed with the grief. So we're going to move on and we're going to look at some of the people that inspired him that also inspired me. So the first person I want to look at that my dad used to talk um, a fair amount about. Um, my dad spoke about a lot of people, to be fair. Like, like what conversation you bring out, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know about that biblical, historical. And you'd be like, oh, wow, you do really know about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, he was well versed and well knowledgeable on different things. So um, Queen Nanny, known to you as... 
you corrected me. Oh, Nanny Maroon. Nanny Maroon. That's it. So, um, this is all these facts are put together by Annabelle. So, any of you that watch this show know that Annabelle writes script and um, very much from a journalistic point of view, and then we discuss them here on Stories of Success. So, um, just to give you some bio about Queen Nanny from 1686 to 1733. So, Queen Nanny is almost a mythical figure. Although she most definitely was a real woman who is revered by many, many of many of the proud, strong, resilient and survival principles that my dad taught me were actually based around the legacy of Queen Nanny. Queen Nanny is considered by many Jamaicans to be the true queen of Jamaica, displaying tremendous resolve and strength of leadership to succeed in battles with colonials. She guided the Maroon communities during what is reported as their most fierce resistance between 1725 and 1740. Her story of endurance, unfailing courage and determination to fight against the Maroon communities being made slave is almost stuff of legend and a woman. She learned the tricks of guerrilla warfare, which she used to train Marine troops. And guerrilla warfare is actually a tactic that was used in many wars after that. Um, strange enough. And I would love to know where she got that from, but hey, we can't ask her. <laughs> um, it's almost certain that this knowledge was a significant part of why Maroon troops that were greatly outnumbered by the British soldiers won so many battles. She also facilitated Maroon attacks on slave plantations in addition to taking food and supplies, many women were also freed from slavery and brought back to safety of the Maroon settlements to live their lives with dignity. History at one stage wanted to dissect Queen Nanny and the Maroon communities that refused to become slaves as bloodthirsty savages. Thankfully, their true spirits have now been recognised by history, to whom I'm grateful to Edward Braithwaite, whose work gave the true account of the life of Queen Nanny. In 1976, Queen Nanny was finally given national recognition for her contribution to the defiance against slavery and the huge contribution made by the Maroon communities to secure liberty and resist slavery with strategic fighting and saw the Maroons become free from the threat of being taken as slaves by the British colonials, who had, at the end of the 18th century, had taken over 300,000 slaves. Um, I didn't know much about Nanny Maroon, if you want me to be honest with you. What struck me the most when I read that was, um, and we had this conversation before we um, started filming, going to keep it real, when I was saying to you, um, history, his story, let's think about how we spell the word history, his story, you know, allows us to know who Nanny Maroon is. Mm -hmm. Because in these days, you could have just wiped her out and not even known about her. Exactly. And Marcus Garvey, someone actually my dad spoke a lot about as I was growing up. A lot, a lot, a lot. And when I actually said to Annabelle, I'd like to cover Marcus Garvey, she sent me an email back and said the only thing she could really find on him is his alliance and association with the KKK. And, you know, that could be quite damaging to put something like that out there. But then it was really strange for me, being second generation Jamaican and learning about Marcus Garvey from my dad growing up, who was a man that fought for the economy, fought for the rights of black people. He was before Malcolm X. He was before Martin Luther King. So this is one of the first men that actually got up and said, hey, 
let's get together, form our own clubs, form our own jobs. He even had like a little group, called it a military, but there was a community. They actually had uniforms. He bought his own like cruise liner boat um, to transport. He was the first, I, I, I can't think of the word. It's not cruise. Cruise is something that you go and holiday in. <laughs> but obviously back then there were ships, there were boats that would take people back and forth for moving around and for better lives, not for, you know, sunbathing and playing in the casino. Um, but yeah, and it was the FBI. They shut that business down. He had to pay about 50 times more for it than what he should have done. They made him out that he took all the black community's money and just spent it. He wasn't responsible. He went bankrupt. But when you read his biography, and if you come from my dad's generation where he was a legacy in Jamaica, they don't speak about him like that. So when you Google someone like Marcus Garvey, you don't really find a true account unless you go to read his biography or maybe you come from a background of myself where my dad actually taught me about him. But actually, Marcus Garvey, like Malcolm X, and many people called Malcolm X the new Marcus Garvey, he believed that we were never going to get over oppression. So the only way we're going to get over it is to have to create our own economy, our own political system, our own schools, and not have to rely on back then what would have been called the white man to have to feed us, clothe us, educate us. We need to create an economy to do it ourselves. So I feel like I need to say that because I feel like Marcus Garvey needs some recognition. He's a man who is very underrated by a few people. But yeah, he died all he, by himself yeah, in London, which is really sad. Yeah, his dream never came true yeah. of what he actually wanted at the time. But the thing is, the legacy that he's left behind, a lot of people still go by those principles. And he's a, it's a, he's a well-read um, biography book as yes. well. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. But coming back to... Nanny Maroon. Yeah, because I didn't know that much about her. Well, Nanny Maroon, from what I know about her, is that Nanny Maroon was... Um, she was like a leader of the Maroon um, people. Who were the Maroons? And Let's tell I'm, the audience. I'm not too sure. Uh, wait. The Maroon people, I believe that they are from Ashan, which is, if I get it right, it's the Ashanti tribe um, from Ghana. And I think they do have some Maroons in Cameroon as well. Okay, I, which makes I sense. I read that somewhere. How true it is that? So no one's holding you to many yeah, facts, I yeah, promise. Yeah. But um, Nanny Maroon, she was just an amazing person because if you just think about the time when she was, um, you know, in a situation at that time yeah. where she had little resources. Because this is like in the 1700s. Even yeah. as a woman to be doing what she was doing, it's kind yeah. of like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She had so much little resources. And for her to be the um, diligent leader of the Maroon people and to take that role as, you know, right, we've got this situation here. We need to sort it out. I'm going to lead you guys. I've got the vision. She was there, what's going on? amazing. And to, and to know that she came out successful in that, yeah. It's, it's great that, to know. With, that strategy with was used again and again yeah. in other wars. Yeah. Because, you know, it was the great, and it shows the power of the human mind. At that time, you know, odds was against her. You had the British, they had money, they had the backing. They I saw them had guns They, they had, had guns, yeah. they, they had everything in their favour. They had ships where they could go and get more resources, etc. And you got this little woman 
that said, okay, look, yeah. this is the situation that we're in. Um, how are we going to do it? And she sat and thought, and she said, you know what? We're going to have to be tactical. So what did she do? She led the Maroon people from the... Um, the, not the city areas, the city areas. The built-up areas, yeah, the commercial, yeah, commercial, commercial areas. Yeah, yeah. The commercial areas, yeah. And she bring them into the, the forest, the woods, because they'd be used to that sort of habitation. And um, basically, she devised plans to conquer the British. So as the British was coming in to try and get the slaves, she was in her own territory where she's... So she was she, in the mountains. She was in the mountains, right. yes. Yeah, so she was in the mountains. So now, um, the British would come to try and get the slaves, etc. And she was able to fight in her own territory and conquer the British, or at least give them so much problems where they thought, you know what, we cannot deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. And um, yeah, it was just amazing to, to just to know that. Even when I was reading about that story, that how she, how she went about and done that, it was great. Yeah, when you look at it like that, in the time that it was, the resources that she would have had, being a woman as well, and mm -hmm. taking that leadership role, and people to actually follow her, yeah. it's kind of like the Jamaican Harriet Tubman, because that's yeah. Harriet, yeah. Yeah. Harriet yeah. Tubman yeah. was a leader yeah. within her yeah. own right, yeah. with the amount of slaves that 100%. she took um, away into the, um, freedom. So, um, and, and it's amazing that you've got someone like Nanny Maroon, and irrespective of where you are in Africa, the West Indies, when I say Africa, that's South Africa, West Africa, East Africa, and we just look at the slave Atlantic slave trade, there are probably many great people that we just don't oh, realise yeah. what they've done. Yeah. And I think for me, the most poignant thing that you touched on that sent that shiver down my spine was a limited resource. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about the fact that, you know, well, I haven't got the money, I can't do it. Um, you know, well, if I've just got educated, I could just do that course. It just means that I'll make it and I'll get to where that I want to make. What you need to have is desire, heart, soul, grit. Just that, you just got to have that do mentality. And when you come and you listen to a lot of the stories on Air of Successes, we've all gone through adversity, but there is just something that gets you through it. But I think people like Nanny Maroon, we've lost something. Even I've lost something. Even looking at the way that my dad would just make something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, even like when my mum told the story of, you know, how they got married at 20. They were living, they were living, sleeping on the settee of my dad's mum and dad, my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And that was their starting life. Nowadays, it's like, oh my God, you've got to have a wedding. You've got to have the right dress. You've got to have a makeup artist. What guests, what are the menus going to be like? I have to live somewhere. I have, it, it all has to be Perfect. this pitch perfect. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that comes from society, though. I think everything, this whole Instagram, with all that, everything looks perfect. And it puts a lot of pressure on people. So now everything, everyone feels that they need to be that way as well. But that's why there are so many influencers now that are doing well just from keeping it real. And if you can be yourself, you will, I, I promise you, I promise you, even if you feel there are not many people like you in the world, there is going to be a community of people like you that feel like you. And if you just put yourself out there, one of, when people say, you know, how do you connect with people? How do you get followers? You know, how do you sell online? It's about building sincere relationships with people through the camera that I'm looking at, through the laptop, through tablets. And the only way you're going to do that is to be sincere. 
that whole creating a facade, it's fake. And as much as it might look nice and people might like it, what do they do after that? You know, so don't ever be afraid to put yourself out there because I promise you, as long as you've got a good product or service and you've got a good why, people will connect with you because there are people like you in the world. I've grown up in a country where I've been classified as an ethnic minority. In terms of the world figures, I am no minority. <laughs> in fact, I'm the majority. <laughs> Um, and I think we need to remember that as underrepresented groups. So, woo woo, Nanny Maroon. <laughs> Nanny Maroon. We need to get a picture of her in the house somewhere. Kind of, yeah, she's rocking it. See, we brought women back in there. Some of the stories of success. But um, yeah, that was someone that my dad spoke about, along with Marcus Garvey. And then the one person that I know my dad would talk about, plays music, has to be the greatest of all time. Bob Marley. <laughs> uh, we all know who Bob Marley is. Bob Marley um, from the 2nd of February 1945 um, to the 11th of May 1981. So let's just have a quick overview that Annabelle's given us of Bob Marley. Fighting against racism, Bob Marley was viewed as much as a political figure that influenced how black people all around the world were viewed as he was a singer. You know, my father never desired, um, denied that certain aspects of Marley's life were difficult to understand, especially that he had 11 children by many women. His music should still be celebrated. Before I read on what Annabelle wrote, I just want to touch on that. Mm -hmm. um, I watched a documentary about Bob Marley. <laughs> and there's this Canadian um, white woman interviewing him. And she turns around and she says to him, but you know, what do you think, you know, the world will think of you, like, you know, the Rastafarite movement and, like, having hair like that and dressing like that and smoking marijuana? Do you not think that that's encouraging people to take drugs and use drugs and abuse drugs? And he just answered her in his way just so eloquently and just said, I don't know about no drug trafficking that you're talking about because she kept coming back to, like, he was a drug dealer. He's like, all I know is that I smoke herbs. All I know is that I have my beliefs and if you don't like my hair or the way that I dress, it doesn't make me a bad person. So if you want to judge people and you want to call those people what you're calling them, and, you know, that's down to you. But all I know is that, yes, I do smoke herbs. Yes, my hair might not look like how you say the rest of the world look, but does that make me the people you're talking about that are bringing drugs into the country and selling them? No, it doesn't. And I thought to myself, that was in um, the late 70s. Like, what does that woman, like, so many journalists at that time, what do they look back and actually think about some of the questions that they used to ask people in this day and age when you can never get away with saying something like that? Like, that's an insult to a man, the great Bob Marley, and you're talking to him that, like, he's a drug dealer. Mm, it goes to show the mentality. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes to show as well that even with the Rastafari movement, don't judge things you don't understand. If you're going to interview someone that you feel is being different, do your research as a journalist. <laughs> and just the way you dress doesn't mean anything. But it's interesting what Annabelle wrote about the fact that he had 11 children by many women. Instantly, you could take that comment and look at our culture and just think typical black culture, baby mothers, kids everywhere, maybe they don't believe in contraception. Never thought about that. So if you don't have contraception, what's going to happen? 
<laughs> these are the basics of science. You know, rest of our playwrights don't believe in putting anything impure in their body. Yeah, they eat completely fresh and idle. It's not just medication or anything they take. So I just feel like, I have to say, around, you know, the Rastafari movement, do your research before you judge. <laughs> and sometimes we have been oppressed as people to make sure that we make mistakes that keep us down and keep us oppressed. And that was one of the things that Bob Marley stood, stood for. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that shadow of a doubt. So just to go on, the music produced by Bob Marley was a powerful tool for spreading the truth of the fight of black people and what they faced against oppression that the world seemed to be ignoring. One of his number one records, Simmer Down, directly challenged the, challenged the alienation and desperation felt by many black teenagers felt across the world when opportunities were limited and racism was influential. Bob was aware that his music had power and in his son's um, in, in his son war, he incorporated the words of an iconic speech made by Selassie at the United Nations in 1963, so that they could be heard by ordinary people who may never listen to reach out and read the speech. Um, that didn't flow as well as it should. So um, before I go on, I want to touch on that. War is actually one of your favourite songs. I love that song. Yeah, I don't know. It's just so. It's so moving, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really a strong message to the people and, you know, within that tune there's, there's just there's so much but the main thing that sticks out in my head about that song is that uh, <clears throat> it's the lyrics that it goes until Me say what? Do 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 What? Yeah. I'll be real. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, I won't. <laughs> yeah. But, um, Dad and my brother, and we actually can't see my brother, he's here actually filming this. Um, and again, for the sake of transparency, I like to keep it real, he actually just cut us because he used to have some long, deep conversations with my dad about this. And one of the things that they used to talk about was actually, what? Miss Ewa, sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> it's like, I want to get up and start being Rhea. Um, one of the things that they used to talk about a lot was actually that song, War. I actually didn't realise this. My brother um, just educated me around this. Um, the song, War, was actually a speech written by Haile Selassie that he took, that he took to the UN. Um, and it was Bob Marley that made it into a song for this to have to go out to the world. Um, and it's so funny. I said to him, well, why, why would they do that? Apparently Ethiopia was one of the only African countries that wasn't conquered. And Italy at the time kept trying to go into Ethiopia to conquer them. Uh, many of you have heard of Mussolini, I'm sure, big character in history. And he went into Italy to conquer Ethiopia. And just like Nanny Maroon, um, the Ethiopians, they could not, Mussolini could not conquer them. You know, and again, they would have just had their natural resources, spares, things around them, where Mussolini would have been coming in on a ship with many troops, with guns, and yet he could not defeat them. And Haile Selassie, what isn't mentioned in the script that I'm reading from Annabelle, actually Haile Selassie to the Rastafarians, um, you know, any of you that are familiar with the Rastafarians and their community, community you'll always hear them say, 
Rastafari. <laughs> <laughs> he just says it so well. <laughs> but you, Bob Marley yeah. said it many a time. No matter what documentary you'll read with Bob Marley, you'll hear him say... Rastafari. <laughs> <laughs> Highly Selassie. Um, that was their, of want of a better term, how to describe it. That's who they believe um, was Jesus Christ reincarnated. Um, you'll hear them refer to it in music and we're going to look at the reggae music part of things. So Mussolini was trying to run up in Ethiopia on more than one occasion, never conquered them. Haile Selassie actually went to the UN and war is the speech that Haile Selassie wrote. Um, so, um, funny how they don't put that on the documentaries that you see about Bob, though, um, as comedy as it should be. And this is what my dad was all about. He was all about, as a people and as a nation, where we're the underdogs, but we're not the underdogs. You could only ever suppress people the way that black people are being suppressed. Because if you don't suppress us, we're powerful. So understand the power that you have within you as a person of colour. What Bob did was that he spoke about the experiences. So even when you think of pirates of the sea, what's the line? Oh, pirates, yes, they run by. <laughs> That's our history. He was singing our history. Um, His music's so powerful. It just... Oh my, even when we was at Get Up Stand Up and you know. I cried when they, but that war, Miss war. Oh, it just, that just said something through my soul. I just listened. It's like I just wanted to stand up and. Miss war. Oh my gosh, I'm telling you. Yeah, the, the, the lyrics on that, that tune is just amazing. But not to put you on the spot, what's like, um, Miss Inferior? So what he was talking about was. He, he was talking about. Basically, to, if you cut all the rubbish out of it, not the rubbish, but... I yeah, get what yeah. We get what yeah. <laughs> So, what he was talking about, he was talking about equality. He was basically saying that one... Until you come... Um, until you come with the understanding of that one uh, nation is not superior than the other, yeah. everywhere is war. And no one particular man is inferior yeah. or superior. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think everyone has to take that on board that no, no one's either inferior or, or superior. superior. Once you've actually got that belief, a whole leap of things change. Yeah. And I'm going to do something here because like I said to you, so my brother is a photographer and videographer and he's actually here filming this session and I can see him doing some type of sign language to me. So we're going to keep it real and you might not be able to see him, but you're going to be able to hear him. Luke, hit me up because I can see that you're looking at us and you want to smack us with some facts. So <laughs> smack us with them. <laughs> you might not be able to see me, but literally I just wanted to confirm this, the part of the lyrics is this, until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abundant. Everywhere is war. Miss war. <laughs> Until there is no longer a first class and second class citizen of any nation. Until the colour of a man's skin is no more significant than the colour of his eyes. Miss yes. war. <laughs> that is the basic human right. Our equal guarantee to all without regard to a race. This war. 
Bow, it's, it's, yeah, it's just I just wanted to kind of get that across Like I said, you can't see me but I just wanted them to just say the lyrics as I know to get across It's a very powerful song that Just even saying those lyrics behind the camera right now You can't see me but it just sends hairs yeah. On your skin and shivers what, upwards And what's so interesting about Bob is at the height of Bob's career a lot of black people didn't actually rate him because he was playing out to actually a white audience. But that audience he was playing out to, they felt unjust. Mm -hmm. They felt like they didn't have a voice. So it was like punk rockers at that time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and these are just terminologies that we use in the 70s. Don't, <laughs> um, don't hate me. But yeah, they, they were groups of people that didn't feel like they were represented in the masses, irrespectively of whether they was white or not. And that's why they connected with his music, because his music was about injustice. So irrespectively, whether you were black or not, that's how masses outside of the black race gravitated so much to Bob's music. And I think sometimes we think, um, you know, especially from those from a black community, oh, Bob Marley's commercial. For anybody that thinks that, take some time out. And like my brother just read, listen to the lyrics. Listen to the lyrics. My dad used to quote Bob Marley back, right, left and front. And it's so many things. Like even that, um, and you, what's it? You know I always sing it because it's so true in life, so true. And you're worse than me. <laughs> And your best friend. Yeah, could be your worst <laughs> enemy, because if the cat fits, <laughs> let them wear it, even steer it up. That's actually a love song. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite erotic. Um, so just, yeah, even when you, even one love, it all goes back to that war speech of you shouldn't judge a man by the colour of his eyes, his skin. You know, the words, he was a lyricist. His words were very, 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 very powerful. I think you could call him a musical prophet. Um, yeah, love that. I, I think that fits <laughs> in perfectly. Yeah. Because, you know, people can come here and they can talk, but you can touch people through music. And his lyrics are so powerful. The amount of people he's moved with just those lyrics. It's, un it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's and it's funny, you know, one of uh, my dad's big, especially when my dad got ill with his leg, but even growing up, I used to hear my dad say it. When the music hits you, you feel no pain. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Bobby, when you look at him at stage, but there was so much about a lot of my dad's quotes, a lot of his principles, a lot of his outlook, a lot of him being a rebel, standing up for himself, the fact that he wasn't afraid to speak about the white man, but yet he didn't consider himself to be racist or prejudiced. He would just speak the truth. He would speak about injustice. He would speak about what it is to be, you know, not represented in the right way after you served the country. A lot of that came from Bob Marley. Even like growing up in my house, even just down to the way that I can propers, I can skank. I can score skank like in the remembering the Windrush generation a lot of the Jamaicans and there's a lot of Trinidadians that would come over they would have big parties um, with big sound box systems be thumping out reggae music uh, music was just the heart of a of most black families, but for Jamaican family, reggae music was just special. Reggae music had a spirit, and Bob brought that spirit to the world. And for me, it, he revolutionised reggae music and brought reggae music on a worldwide scale and level. And for that, that makes me proud to be Jamaican. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and it made my dad proud to be Jamaican. Um, see, I've gone on so much, I've not finished Annabelle's um, script. So, <laughs> the music produced by Bob Marley was a powerful tool for spreading the truth of the fight black people face against oppression that the world seemed to ignore. One of his number one records, Simmer Down. <laughs> Simmer Down. Okay. Yeah. Simmer Down was directly challenged the alienation and depression, dep um, depression, oh, desperation, sorry, felt by many black teenagers felt across the world when opportunities were limited and racism was influential. Bob was aware that his music had power. And I've actually read this already, but I'm just repeating it. And, um, you know, the war incorporated the words from the iconic speech made by Haile Selassie at the United Nations in 1963. Bob Marley music continues to lift and inspire as well as educate the sad truth that for many black people, racism is still real and it's a threat to life. In fact, Britain and America, black people are still unjustly arrested, losing their lives at the hand of the police. This is why Bob Marley's music is still relevant today. Um, for me as well, it's still relevant. It, it, going back to the war song, their governments, people in higher societies, they feel they're superior. Mm. And as long as that keeps existing, there's a problem because there's never going to be equality um, because equality now becomes a threat. Um, so this is why Bob Marley's music is relevant today. And when he first made it... Um, you know, it's, his message was a message of unity. Remember, Bob Marley comes from the background of having a white dad and a black mum. Let's be clear about that. So he comes from a mixture of two cultures. So his fight was never a hatred towards white people. And I think sometimes when we speak about those issues, it gets misconstrued into a, what about white people? What about, you know, Asian people? What about other people? But what Bob was saying is that the oppression against black people has to stop at some point. Just the way it started, just to take us in slaves and ships and we're dying and vomiting and you're chaining us, you're beating us like animals, you're treating us as something of less human. And over the period of the centuries, little by little, you're given a little crumb of a right, a little crumb of a right. And now that those crumbs have amalgamated into a biscuit, you're meant to be happy. The problem is, is the biscuit's not sold. <laughs> <laughs> so that fight still continues today as much as it is getting better but yeah these are the things that I grew up about and I stood for but now I do I think for me more so now at this age and being in this digital age going through the pandemic coming out the other end I think now I understand more than ever of Bob's cry for unity it's easy to get lost in the oppression part of things and stay angry and not get past that and get to the solution of actually unity. Because if we don't want to be judged by the colour of our skin, eye colour or our hair or our beliefs, nobody should be judged. Mm. <laughs> that's the, And that's actually what Bob was promoting. So now, you know I've got to bring a woman back into it <laughs> um, to finish it off. I just want to look at Sedella. Um, Sedella Marley Booker, Booker, Bob Marley's mother. Okay. Um, strong woman. So let's find out a little bit more about Sedella. Sedella was admired for her beautiful singing. Captain Marley was actually um, a white farmer that arranged deals for contracts of land. So he didn't actually own the land at the time. So um, she worked there as a slave, as you would have done in that time. 
And they actually started a relationship. Just to let you know, when I read this, this made me feel happy because I always thought that there was some type of abuse around the way that he was conceived. Mm. Because in that time, yeah. <laughs> that, right. yeah, that would have been really common. So that actually made me feel better, if you want me to be honest with you. So he started the relationship with 70-year-old Sedella when he was a tenant at the Malcolm's big house. When Sedella was 18, they actually got married. Funny how they don't advertise that. Wow. Um, Captain Marlin's family did not approve of the marriage, um, as we could all well imagine. And after the birth of Bob, Marley left Sedella, then aged 19, and he later remarried and forgot all about her. But he put the name Marley on the map. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, so he he did so Captain Marley did little and nothing to support Sedela um, and his son, Bob, and was not active in their lives at all. So Sedelia and Bob lived in Trenchtown, a poor neighbourhood with high crime rates and few opportunities. She always encouraged Bob to think bigger and was reassured that he would have success, success with his music career. After, um, after that, Marley, Livingston and Macintosh formed the... Whalers. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the Wailing Whalers, then the dropped whaling, the Wailing yeah, Whalers and became yeah. the Whalers. Correct. So Delia eventually decided to leave Jamaica and move to the United States of America, where she knew relatives in Delaware. Although she tried hard to persuade Bob to come with her to the USA, he refused. Oh, pirates, how they rubber. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Cedelia married again in the USA. Her second husband, Edward Booker, died in 1976. Bob remained close to his mum and often visited her and did odd jobs in the USA um, with the Whalers. Cedella was with her son at the Cedars Lebanon Hospital on the 11th of May 1981 when he died. Bob's last word that he whispered to comfort his mother as he was dying was, Mother, don't cry. Not long after Bob's death in May 1981, Sedella became Keeper of the Flame. Before her death on the 8th of April in 2008, she published two books. Bob Marley, An Intimate Portrait by His Mother in 1997 and Bob Marley, My Son in 2003. My dad was also, I just want to cover one more thing. I actually forgot I asked Anna Bill to do this. So before we close the show, um, you know what they say about every great man is a greater woman, whether that's his... Well, his actually only wife was Rita Marley. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, Rita Marley, we're not going to go into it today, but she's an icon for me. Mm. Um, a selfless icon. A selfless icon that done so much more for everyone around her. Bob, the children, his other children. She put so many people before her actual own needs for knowing that the world needed him yeah. because you're right he was a musical prophet and I think Rita understood that mm. and so did his mum um so I did want to cover his mum because it's just that sorry you know I'm smiling it's another testament yeah. testimony of behind every great man it's not always a wife but his mum was at the back she was there in the background she was there she was there um and it's through her telling him he was going to be successful and he's going to make it make it in his music when you have got someone in your corner that is a cheerleader it's everything it's everything it gives you that desire to keep going so if you've got a cheerleader in your forefront just value them and just surround yourself with them more because that's what you need to hear to keep on in your journey 
Um, so the last one, I have to do it. Um, Bob Marley was political. He put, for me, he bought reggae music worldwide, but there was many greats. It wasn't just Bob Marley. If you speak to the black community, reggae music is huge in our community. It's at, it's at the forefront of everything. Music is when you look at our carnivals and you look at sound systems, the big thumping speakers, when you look at how we have a good time, food and music is at the forefront of it always. And there is something about music. It is when it hits you, you don't feel no pain. You feel nothing but joy. And reggae music in particular, when you listen to it, it's funny. It's either political because there's many artists that were political. It wasn't just Bob. No, 100%. It's also full of love because love is the biggest emotion that runs this world and will conquer all. So I want to look at you, Roy. You, Roy? Wow. <laughs> we're going to look at you, Roy, known as Ewat Beckford. Um, he was born on the 21st of September 1942 to the 17th of February 2021. So he, I wanted to cover him because he actually died recently and he was one of my dad's favourite artists. I know you and my dad used to sit down and listen and play a lot of Uroy. Yeah. Um, and just as a background, what would you say Uroy sung mainly about? Oh, Uroy could be uh, quite political at some times. Um, he also um, was that kind of fight for your rights kind of person. Um, yeah, he, he had a lot of music that was based around those sort of subjects. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of reggae artists, you were born in 1942, yeah. so this is at so a time... So he would have grown up in the time of seeing yeah. Yeah. segregation, black people treated a certain way, so the the way to express yourself at that time was to put it on the track. Through music. So and that's it's why so different so nowadays, powerful. like um <laughs> there are certain genres of music which I feel like is just just like I listen to certain rap, especially UK rap, and I roll my eyeballs to the back of my head because the things that are being spoken about, when you look at these guys when they were speaking on behalf of the race, the world what was going on, um, you know, having to be a rebel, getting up, standing up, fighting for your rights, and what the world... And one thing you have to remember is a lot of us will condemn people that put music out that is just nonsense, but you have to remember who funds putting this music out <laughs> and making it popular. Funny enough, I had a discussion with a man one time. He said, oh, um, we was talking about music. He said, oh, what music do you listen to? I said, oh, I listen to reggae. He said, like, oh, what do you think about uh, this rap music and where they talk about the N-word and etc., etc." I said, well, I think it's a bunch of negativity, personally. And he said, oh, yeah, I know, but you've got all these youths listening to it and etc." I said, yeah, that's right, you have. But then I said, you know what? Who are the people that are marketing it? Because we don't have marketing budgets to, to get it worldwide. And now you've got all these youths. From all different backgrounds. From all, yeah. Pumping it into their brain. Pumping negativity in their brains 24-7. That's causing them to act a certain way. Yeah. And, yeah. Just like when we look at neighbourhoods like Trenchtown that Bob Marley would have come from. And they talk about the gun violence. Could these people make guns? Mm -hmm. Could they? <laughs> Could they even really 
afford guns, most of them. So how did guns flood the community? They haven't got the wealth. They haven't got the knowledge or mechanics to make them. So how would they be flooded into a neighbourhood? This is where we have to sometimes be a bit more intelligent. And And use the resources that you've got. I think today, the biggest lesson that's come from sitting around stories of success today with you is use the resource that you have. Stop looking and thinking that you need more. Get use the resource that you have. So let's find out a little bit more about you, Roy, and we're going to wrap up. Mm-hmm. So you, Roy, was another character in reggae music, um, in the reggae music scene, who has inspired a generation of the sound system MC in the 70s and is also often considered one of the founders of rap and hip-hop music. Uroy is renowned for the sound system era, which came from Jamaica to England and the all-night blues dances. His family was religious and played a significant part at a local seven-day Adventist church. Uroy was born in Jonestown, St Andrews, parish of Kingston, Jamaica. His younger brother found it difficult to pronounce his birth name, Ewert, <laughs> and that's how he ended up with the nickname Uri, <laughs> which he used as his stage name. When his mother immigrated to Britain, he lived with his grandmother. Uroy did not finish school and started to DJ at the age of 14. It took him five years before he was able to make his professional debut, which uh, when he was 19 years old. Uroy was also known as Daddy Uroy, or the originator, and was renowned as a pioneer of toasting vocal star in reggae and a key figure in the development of Jamaican music in the UK during the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s. I love this quote from an interview with Uroy. When I started, the only rappers I heard were people who got a job in a store wrapping gifts. <laughs> That's so Jamaican. Really. Yeah, so Jamaican. <laughs> um, and that was a United Reggae interview. In 1975, Virgin Records released Uroy's album, Dread in a Babylon, <laughs> in the USA, Europe and Jamaica. This was a huge break for Uroy and he released many albums after, including Natty Rebel, Rasta Ambassador and Jasun of Africa in 1978, as the year that we were born. Um, in 1978, Uroy was recognised as a pioneer and went to start his own sound system, which he named after his son, Stagav. I didn't know that. Um, Uroy's sound system. His sound system was instrumental in launching careers of toasters and singers, including Jaskrew, Charlie Chaplin and Jossie Wells. Um, Uroy's influence is still clearly present today in early 1990s. Toasters like Shabba, Supercat, Bujabanton were all following Uroy's footsteps. When interviewed in 1990, Uroy simply said, if you had said back then that this music from the sound system would get Jamaicas on American radio, I would not have believed it. He said, but I'm glad to see this happening now and to have played a small part in it. In 2007, Uroy received the Order of Distinction from the Jamaica government for his contribution to music. In 2012, Uroy released the album Pray for the People. And his final album, Taking Roots, was released in 2018. He passed age 78 at the University Hospital of the West Indies. Um, so funny enough, I kind of wanted to do some research on Uroy's mother. You know, I always like to find out who the strong woman was, who the influencer was. 
Um, and this is all we found. I would love to know his mother's name, which I could not find anywhere online. This was despite you always death being covered by The Independent, The Guardian, The New York Times and The Rolling Stones, just to name a few. Not one article mentioned his mother or indeed his father's name. I find this a little sad and I can say, all I can say is that his mother played the organ in a church. And this is what I'm trying to say to you. Another rebel. When we look at people like Shabba Ranks, Bujabanton, Supercat, this is what brought reggae into Bashment and brought that into hip-hop R&B and brought that to America and brought that to the UK. This style of music is now turned into Afrobeats. I see, we're a bit old now, but I still see emails coming to my email box that is Bashment versus Afrobeat. Um, Euro's presence with the sound system um, even just knowing all the songs that my dad played and again about like the resistance the struggle the justice and he died and he gets mentioned in every broadsheet paper magazine worldwide BBC did a whole weekend special on it but no one told the story of his life outside his music mm. <coughs> and this is why we do stories of success um, because without having a show like this, there are people that are just full of greatness, full of so much greatness that don't get covered. Um, but today was a tribute to my dad, um, which I'm happy to have done, proud to have done, honoured to have done. I would go as far as saying. And we also looked at some big women still, and we also looked at injustice and I think the biggest thing that should come out for you today as a lesson is you can make something out of nothing yeah you can be as big as you want to be you have to believe it and you've got to work with what you've got but what you do have to do is be strategic so please do drop your comments please do share please join us every week um and yeah we just really enjoyed hanging out Nathan thank you for doing that with You're me today welcome. Thank you very much. I shall see you next week.